know the lyrics to the extended version of every 90s TV theme song? And you recite the entire script to Wayne's World on command, verbatim? Might you wax nostalgic about injuries sustained during backyard wrestling matches? Have you pontificated at length over what beer goes best with Mario Kart? Do you philosophically dwell for inappropriate lengths of time on phenomena like snowsuits, minor five chords, Rocky Four, baseball stats, wall-mounted pencil sharpeners, cinnamon toast crunch, Murray Wilson, seasons two through eight of The Simpsons, Bond villains, then friends, lovers, palindromes, have we got the show for you. It's Calling BS with Brandon and Scott, your esoteric clerics for the fleet of mouth and mind. Brutally honest, meticulously obsessive, and painstakingly pragmatic. Check us out and BS, I love you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we're discussing the cast of Miracle on 34th Street. And just to be clear, we're talking about uh, the classic original Miracle on 34th Street, not uh, the new remake. That yeah, is probably yeah. quite old now. Or any of the other uh, versions that exist out there, which I'll get to when we talk about the trivia. Nice. Uh, how are things? Uh, things are good. Just uh, getting ready for the end of the semester, which for writing professors means I'm getting ready for an avalanche of papers to come my way. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, I just got through grading a big load of um, exams and essays and I'm sort of in the calm between, but uh, it won't last long. <laughs> yes. There's there's always more grading. Yeah. And I just woke up from a long winter's nap, <laughs> which... <laughs> It uh, delayed our recording. I didn't know where you were, Todd. <laughs> so sorry. I'm still so sorry. Oh, uh, it's fine. Uh, just shake the cobwebs out so we can have a, a good discussion about we're like, an hour, we're like an hour behind schedule, but it's okay. An hour and a half behind, an hour and 40 minutes behind schedule. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, as Todd said, uh, we we're talking about Miracle on 34th Street, which was based on a story idea by Valentine Davies, and the screenplay was written by George Seaton, who also directed the film. And this tells the story of a department store, Santa Claus, who came, claims to be the real Kris Kringle, or the other way around, whichever way you want to think about that. Uh, he is put on trial to prove his mental competency, and we follow Santa, his defense lawyer, Fred Gailey. Doris, a skeptical manager at the department store, and also the mother of Susan. And uh, this little girl, Susan, is a key part of the film as well. And this film stars Edmund Gwen as Chris Kringle, John Payden as Fred Gailey, Maureen O'Hara as Doris Walker, and eight-year-old Natalie Wood as Susan Walker. And it was originally released on June 4th, 1947. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into why it was released in June. Uh, and just a quick shout out to Natalie Wood. She is Maria in uh, West Side Story. I know that she is, and yet I never believe that she is when I'm watching this movie. She is fantastic as the skeptical eight-year-old in this film. She's so good. And the, I mean, talk about um, – we've, we've often joked about actors who it seems like they can only ever play one role. <laughs> and Natalie Wood, it's like she is – I mean, it helps that she that, – you know, they're – 10 years apart or more but man it just is so hard for me to believe that it's the same person playing those two roles i i really was quite impressed with her performance uh i 
I, this is a movie that is often in uh, the rotation. I guess if we want to jump into the how we came to it, it's often in my holiday rotation, but it's not like a must see every uh, Christmas season the way for me, White Christmas is like, mm-hmm. it's it's not the holiday season until White Christmas has been on. But I, watching it more closely for this podcast, I just thought she is nailing this. <laughs> She is really good. She's definitely one of the high points in the film. The acting, I really like the acting in this movie. Uh, I like the the man that's Chris. Who was his name? Uh, Gwen. Uh, Edmund Gwen. Edmund Gwen. Yeah, he's really good. And he Maureen won an Academy O'Hara Award is, for this. So. Maureen O'Hara is always uh, great. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> so, yeah. It's it's a good movie. I found um, this this is, I would, I think probably maybe more in our rotation than it is yours. I've seen this movie a lot of times and the newer, the newer version also, I think when the newer version came out, we stopped watching the older version and just started watching the newer one. But I found that I have questions after watching yeah. it this time. <laughs> yeah. Right before we started recording, you said, oh, it hasn't aged as well as I, I had hoped. And I thought, well, for me watching it more closely, I was like, there's so much here. That's awesome. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we will have some counterpoints, I guess, as we discuss. Yeah, maybe you can maybe you can help me help me out with some stuff, but I have some questions. Oh, uh, I maybe maybe I'll come away with more questions. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, some uh, some trivia about Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. This is well, just trivia about our podcast. This is the second episode we've talked about Maureen O'Hara. We previously talked about The Quiet Man in episode number thirteen, and she's great in both films. She was really good. I, I mean. I think she's one of those actresses that a lot of film buffs could know, but I feel like she probably needs more respect in the general culture at large as one of the icons of Hollywood. We we sat down to watch this, and Betty um, Betty was not in the room when we started the movie, and then she kind of came in, and as soon as she saw Maureen O'Hara, she she just stopped and said, "Whoa, who is that? She is good." And uh, I mean, there's just something about her like she really uh, kind of leaps off the screen. She's she's amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's definitely a presence. I think is a good way. Yeah, to describe it. Uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but it lost. Todd, do you know what it lost to? Well, I'm looking at the notes. So. You're looking at the trivia. Yeah, it lost to the, <laughs> the classic film Gentleman's Agreement, which uh. maybe has fallen out of the cultural rotation more yes. than Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street in the intervening decades. What is Gentleman's <laughs> Agreement? Is that a, a Marilyn Monroe film? Uh, let me look this up. I was actually uh, doing that just a second ago. A reporter pretends to be Jewish in order to cover a story on anti-Semitism and personally discovers the true depths of bigotry and hatred. <laughs> okay, I'm guessing that's not a Marilyn Monroe film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, based on Laura Z. Hobson's best-selling novel of the same name, Gregory Peck was uh, the reporter. That was uh, actually who I had in my mind as, uh, as would have been the reporter. It seems yeah. like a, a role for him. My goodness. I'm sorry, Gregory Peck, if you're if you're <laughs> listening <laughs> from from the other side. Uh, I'm sorry I confused your film with a Marilyn Monroe film. <laughs> Were you thinking of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Todd? Yes, I'm sure that I was. <laughs> I was trying to think of which Marilyn Monroe film you were, were going over. Uh, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street did win uh, Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor for Edmund Gwen playing Chris Kringle slash Santa Claus. It also won two different writing awards. The awards were different back then. It won Best Writing for Original Story and Best Writing for a Screenplay. 
And uh, up above, when we were doing the quick synopsis, you may, may have noted the odd release date. Well, the studio head insisted that more people go see movies in warm weather than in cold weather. So he thought the film should be released in the summer. And we'll include in the show notes the original trailer for this film, which somehow omits the fact that it is about Santa Claus <laughs> and Christmas entirely. <laughs> it makes it uh, look like it's uh, either... Well, it kind of... It's an odd trailer. It has like a studio exec watching a cut of the film and saying, I think this is going to be pretty good. And then walking around and other people are saying that they've seen it. And like uh, the, a woman says, oh, it has such great romance for the female audience. They're going to love it. And then a man's like, it's a great courtroom drama for the men. They're going to love it. Uh, and, and they don't mention Santa Claus <laughs> at all. I wonder what audiences thought, you know, reaction was. That is one of the biggest, um, like, miscells of a film that I can think of, you know, selling Miracle on 34th Street as not about Christmas. Wasn't White Christmas also released in the summer? Ooh, I don't, I don't remember. It seems like, it seems like maybe it was. Seems like we've had this conversation Yeah, haven't we? Before. But it may be that, because I, I, this is something I knew about, uh, oh, okay. um, about Miracle on 34th Street, so maybe it came up when we were talking about doing this one. It was released in October. White Christmas was released in October, oh, okay. so okay. closer to the holiday season than yes. June. In the UK, this film was originally released with the title The Big Heart. <laughs> I thought that said The Big Heat, and I was going to say, no, Joe, that's a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of confusion about movies, but no, The Big Heart. The Big Heart. Uh, well, uh, Miracle on 34th Street was added to the National Film Registry in 2005, and it was ranked number nine on the American Film Institute's list of 100 most inspirational films. And this is maybe my favorite bit of trivia about the film. It gets a fact rather wrong. There's a scene where Chris Kringle is uh, displaying his mental competency, <laughs> and he claims that Daniel Tompkins was vice president under John Quincy Adams. <laughs> but as any student of U.S. history knows, John C. Calhoun was John Quincy Adams' vice president. This really feeds into one of the big questions that I have about this. So, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, we'll circle around to it. Okay, we're going to come back. It's, it's just uh, anytime you look up trivia on uh, Miracle 34 Street, you'll come across the fact that they, you know, Chris Kringle uses the wrong uh, vice president. Uh, Valentine Davies, who, who came up with the story, published a novelization of the film at the same time that the film came out. And the film was one of the first black and white films to be colorized when that process was all the rage in the 1980s, when uh, Turner, I think it was, thought, no one likes black and white movies, let's put them all in color. <laughs> and I thought it was worth noting that, boy, oh boy, are there a lot of adaptations and remakes. In 1947, a radio adaptation was produced with the same cast as the film. Wow. In 1955, there was a TV movie adaptation. In 1959, NBC aired a live theatrical style adaptation. A copy of this was recently discovered. It had been thought lost. In 1963, a Broadway musical adaptation titled Here's Love was produced. In 1973, there was another TV movie adaptation. In 1994, there was the film remake, which is the one you referenced earlier, Todd. Yes. And in 2000, a stage adaptation of the Valentine novel uh, was uh, was written, and that script is used in a lot of community theaters, apparently. <laughs> and um, during the holiday season, the flagship Macy's store in New York puts on a half-hour puppet show adaptation of the film. <laughs> <laughs> and in many of these adaptations, as we're noting, the characters' names and store names are different, but the same general plot is followed in all of them. So that's my trivia on Miracle on 34th Street. 
Awesome. Thanks. Uh, before we move on, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. And we want to especially thank those who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are order sh shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now, uh, Joe, you have a long synopsis. Yes, I do. Uh, in New York City, it's time for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, but their Santa is rip-roaring drunk. <laughs> a kindly older man with a full white beard notices this problem and brings it to the attention of Doris Walker, a woman who is in charge. She asks the man if he can fill in so the kids won't be disappointed, and he agrees. Doris goes back home where her maid tells Doris that her daughter Susan is watching the parade at her neighbor's house, a Mr. Fred Gailey. He's going to be important. Uh, Fred Gailey has the best view of the parade out of his window. Susan tells Mr. Gailey that she and her mother don't believe in nonsense like fairy tales or Santa Claus. After the parade, Susan invites Fred to come over for Thanksgiving dinner. Now, the Santa in the parade is so good that he is hired to be the official Santa at the Macy's toy store. He does great, uh, but he is unorthodox. He keeps telling parents where they can find the toys their kids request, even if it is not at Macy's, which is disconcerting for the na uh, Macy's managers that are over. Over him. Uh, he had been instructed to push certain items that Macy's has in stock, in fact, in overstock, and that they're trying to get rid of them. But this Santa absolutely does not do that. One day, uh, when Doris's maid needs to go home early, she asks Fred to take Susan to Macy's, where Doris is working. Fred stops by to see Santa with Susan. He wants Susan to see this this Santa, because it's a pretty good one. Susan is impressed with how authentic uh, Santa appears, especially when she sees him speak Dutch to a little girl who was recently adopted. Doris asks uh, Fred, uh, so, so Doris, the mother, sees Susan with Santa Claus, and then she pulls Fred aside and asks him not to fill her daughter's head with fairy tales. Uh, ever since Doris and Susan's uh, dad got divorced, Doris is determined that Susan will be raised with a logical review with no expectations of happily ever afters. Doris asks Santa uh, to tell uh, Susan that, she, that he is not really Santa. So the mom gets Santa over in the room with the daughter and says, just explain to him that or to her that you are pretending. But Chris insists, no, I'm really Santa. Doris asks for his employment record, and it says that his legal name is Chris Kringle. Susan becomes concerned that this nice old man might be a little crazy, so she informs him that he'll need to be let go. Just then, Susan gets called up to a meeting with Mr. Macy, and he is ecstatic about the positive praise his store is getting because their Santa is putting kids' happiness ahead of commercialism. He wants to congratulate uh, their Santa himself, so Susan has to go unfire him. She does ask him to go and see a Dr. Sawyer for a mental evaluation. Dr. Sawyer works for uh, the, the company and kind of like an HR department role, it seems. And Chris Kringle goes and meets with Dr. Sawyer and passes the test with flying colors. Though he, uh, Santa, is a little concerned about Dr. Sawyer's mental, mental health because he seems a little stressed and frazzled. I love Sawyer. I think he's hilarious in this. <laughs> I forgot how uh, just how like unhinged he is. Yes, how broad he, he plays that character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chris Kringle tries to help Susan learn. So this is a little girl, Susan. He tries to help her learn how to play pretend, but it's difficult because Doris has insisted that Susan always grow up in a world of black and white truth. Fred Gailey invites Santa to stay with him during the holidays so that he doesn't have, a, uh, have to travel so far to work. He's been staying at a retirement home uh, outside of the city. So Santa uh, is also intrigued because this will mean he'll be close to Doris and Susan, and he can test his ability to inst instill some faith and belief in them. Susan 
says uh, that all she wants from Santa is a house. And she means like a very specific house. It's not that she wants to be out of the apartment she's living in with her mom. She wants this house. She shows Santa a picture with a backyard. And she says that if Chris is the real Santa, he'll be able to get it. And Chris kind of gives us some thought but doesn't commit to it. Soon, all the department stores in the city are putting customers before profit and helping them know where to locate the products they are seeking. At lunch, Santa sits down with a nice young employee named Alfred, who has enjoyed dressing up as Santa at the holidays. Alfred is feeling a bit down and explains that Dr. Sawyer told him he only wants to give this service because he must have a guilt complex for something wrong he's done, even if he can't remember what it was. Chris uh, Kringle goes to confront Sawyer about this, and the argument becomes heated, and in the course of the fight, Santa knocks Sawyer over the head with his cane, and Sawyer pretends to be knocked out unconscious (laughs) so that he can make it into a bigger deal. Um, Upset at everything, including that Doris doesn't believe that he's really Santa, Chris Kringle allows himself to be committed to Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. Fred, uh, the neighbor and a lawyer, he visits and he convinces Chris Kringle to try and get out of the hospital. But because Chris failed his first test on purpose, this is going to be difficult. And just as a judge is about to sign papers to commit Chris Kringle... Fred arrives and asks for a formal hearing about Chris's competency. Fred decides to get public opinion on his side before the court hearing, and soon newspapers are full of articles about Santa Claus being on trial in New York City. A political strategist tells the judge, who's going to be hearing the case, that he should not touch this case with a 10-foot pole. But the judge says nobody's going to hold anything against him if he tries this case. Then his grandkids refuse to give him a kiss for putting Santa on trial uh, for lunacy, and the judge starts to get nervous. At the trial, the judge tells Chris that he doesn't have to answer any questions. He's trying to, like, make this as easy and um, non-combative as possible. But Chris insists that he's willing to answer any questions. Uh, So the DA asks him if he's Santa Claus. And he says, of course. And so the district attorney rests his case. (laughs) Well, not his case, just that line of questioning. Fred then insists, Fred Gailey insists that the case hinges on Kringle's belief that he's Santa. And then he says, this does not mean that Chris Kringle is insane because... If he's really is Santa, then he's not crazy. Uh, <laughs> which uh, gets even more press. Uh, Fred even quits his law firm uh, over this case because they say they're hurt- he's hurting the law firm's reputation. And he's so convinced that um, he needs to help Chris Kringle out that he quits the law firm. In the courtroom, Mr. Macy is brought to the stand and asked if he believes that Chris Kringle is Santa. And he imagines headlines and outrage if he denies that Kringle is Santa. So he offers this very equivocating answer. And the DA insists that he has to say yes or no. And Macy thinks back to seeing Santa interact with kids and everything magical that he's kind of done for the season. And he says, yes, I think he's Santa. The prosecutor then insists that the court rule if there is or is not a Santa. And the judge asks for a recess to think this over. The political strategist lays out how horrible for the judge's career it will be if he rules that the New York Supreme Court insists there is no Santa Claus. So the judge announces that he will keep an open mind as it considers the reality of Santa. Fred Gailey calls the DA's young son to the stand and asks him if he believes in Santa. And the boy points at Chris Kringle and says, yeah, he's right there. So the DA announces that the state concedes the existence of Santa Claus, but insists that Fred Gailey must prove that Chris Kringle is the one and only Santa. Gailey asks for an adjournment until tomorrow so he can try and find evidence. Doris and Susan write a letter to Chris Kringle telling him that they believe in him. The letter is addressed to him at the courthouse, and we cut to the post office where a postal worker uh, laughs at this letter that isn't addressed to the North Pole or the South Pole or anywhere else they usually hear that Santa Claus lives. It says the New York City courthouse, and his supervisor tells him about the case, saying, no, that's that's correct. It'll get to him. And the worker says, hey, what about all the dead letters to Santa Claus that we have here? Could we get rid of them? 
and the workers go to grab bags of the letters so they can send them to the courthouse and just get them out of their hair. At court the next day, Gailey reads about the history of the post office and how it is an official arm of the federal government. The defense asks, or the prosecutor asks what the point is, and Fred Gailey has workers bring in all the letters to Santa that the post office has delivered to Chris Kringle at the courthouse. The judge rules that if the federal government recognizes Chris Kringle as Santa, he will not dispute it, and he dismisses the case. And the DA then rushes out to go buy a gift for his kid because it's Christmas Eve. Taurus uh, invites Chris over for dinner that night, but he says he can't because it is Christmas Eve. The next day on Christmas, uh, Mr. Macy is having a large Christmas party for Chris and everyone who helped him out this season. Susan is happy. Uh, so this little girl, Susan, is happy that Kringle has been let out of the hospital, but she's really sad that she, he couldn't get her the house she wanted. She at least hoped for a note explaining why he couldn't. Doris insists that Su- Susan should have faith, believing in things even when common sense tells you not to. Chris Kringle gives Fred and Doris a map of a way home from Macy's house. Fred, Doris, and Susan are driving along. And I should point out that at, by this point, uh, Fred and Doris are romantically involved. (laughs) Uh, So they're driving along when Susan suddenly yells out for them to stop and she runs out of the car. They were passing by the exact house she had told Santa she wanted. She runs into the house. Fred and Doris run after her and tell her not to run into other people's house. And then they realize it's empty because the house is for sale. And Susan's, she finds the room that she always wanted upstairs and the backyard is just like she imagined it. And she yells out that Santa got it for her. And Fred and Susan uh, look at each other and Fred says, this home will be, uh, basically this home will be a great place to raise a family. And then he notices Chris Kringle's cane is sitting in the corner. The end. Well done. Thank you. It's kind of, I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, but uh, (laughs) there are some uh, twists and turns in the, the plot. Yeah, a few here and there. Yeah. So, um, can I ask some of my questions now? Yeah, let, let's get your questions out of the way. Okay. And maybe I'll have a response. Uh, maybe I'll just say, huh, you're raising a good point. Okay. Um, I mean, first of all, <laughs> this movie was obviously made in different times when people just let their kids go over to random strangers' houses and, like, <laughs> hang out yes there was a little line of dialogue i thought that at least acknowledged it a bit where the maid says susan's over at your neighbor mr gailey's house i've been keeping an eye on her she says that yes Uh so there's at least a nod to to that but yeah it it still felt a little weird okay and that but that's not like i mean that's obviously i mean we've talked about before i'm not gonna that's not the reason why I have concerns about this. It was just like at the beginning of this film, I I was thinking, my goodness, they are very, this is a very trusting society. <laughs> um, uh, it's different than, and now, I mean, if anybody's listening to this from the future, we are in November, almost December of 2017, when it looks like every single person in the world is being fired for being a complete idiot <laughs> and not trustworthy at and all. And a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> and a criminal. Uh, so there's that. Then uh, I have a question. Okay, so when they're in the store and he speaks Dutch to that little girl, does he speak mm-hmm. every language? I mean... Well, he's, he's Santa Claus, so yes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, and I thought that scene, I don't know that I've ever really processed what the, uh, the adoptive mom says. Mm-hmm. Uh, where she says, um, you know, we just adopted her from, um, from Denmark, right? Right. Uh, and and she just kind of leaves it vague. She saying she's been in an orphanage after you know. And I don't know. Like when I was watching a kid, I certainly never processed that she's talking about World War Two. Yeah, yeah. So then I just once they start talking about his mental state, I my mind just gets so tied up in knots. 
So they say things like, maybe he's just a little crazy, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> which would be which would be totally fine. And the, the, here's the thing. Mr. Sawyer, he's a total um, nincompoop. And he's completely uh, like neurotic, and he just has all these strange like tics, and and, and his, he's not his eyebrow. He, he's not actually a psychiatrist. No, but he's right, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, he's totally well, Todd, right, unless he's really Santa Claus. That's no, he totally point. calls it. He totally calls. He says he he calls everything that's going to happen. Uh, Wh- which part you mean? Like he'll become violent? That he's going to become violent. Well, Which he, he also he pushes him to become violent, like it's well, a self fulfilled prophecy. <laughs> but he says, like, I, I mean, Chris at any moment could just say, you know what, I'm going to go talk to Mr. Macy, which which would have completely solved the whole entire issue. But he doesn't. Instead, he takes his cane and whacks this guy on the head, which is not a normal behavior. I don't. And think. it's not a very Santa Clausy behavior either. It's not a very Santa Clausy behavior, but it's not. I mean, that's like that's not a pro social behavior it's not something you would expect from from santa claus uh yes. and especially when he's already like in his mind contemplating i'm just gonna go tell mr macy so um, did sawyer co- have it coming to him yes did he push chris into this of course but my goodness uh it just doesn't seem like the greatest <laughs> the greatest behavior for him and so then they then they go to court and i feel so bad i feel so bad for the opposing the da like he's just a good guy trying to do a, like a regular job, which is this guy says he's Santa Claus, and he and he whacked this other guy over the head with a cane, and and we already have uh, one professional's opinion saying that this could have happened, and then it did, and, and like he gets just thrown under the bus for being a horrible person because he's just kind of doing his job. So that part of that that part of this film was it was just kind of. Um, hard for me to like uh process i and think they needed to do even a little bit more to uh explain the moment when he does hit him like or or to excuse the moment when he hits him yeah because he does actually hit him and as you said like that's not okay <laughs> it's not okay and and <laughs> And then, I mean, Gailey does this like great lawyer thing where he says, no, here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove that he's Santa Claus. And it's like, what? That's amazing. <laughs> and I love that part. Um, and it is inspirational. And uh, I, I, the, the, maybe the greatest um, like uh, critique of this film was from my seven-year-old daughter who is very um, – she's very discerning and she has a very logical mind. And she will ask questions about things that don't make sense to her. And we watched this whole thing. And I was kind of, um, I was trying to be uh, not totally opinionated while I was watching it and just sort of let them watch the film. But I was like, okay, do you see what's going on here? Do you see what's going on here? And it ended. And she looked at me and her eyes were like as big as quarters. And she said, I loved that. And I said, why? And she said, I don't know, but I love that movie. <laughs> and there is something just uh, uh, so heartwarming at the end. Uh, uh, but when I'm, when he says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna prove that he's Santa Claus," uh, it's a great turn, like where he sort of flips the courtroom on its head. But really, is I, <laughs> I mean, it, it says written on his on his employment papers that his next of kin are like Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Comet, and Vixen. 
why does you know why don't they bring that up and just say okay let's call comet why don't you give him a call you know like he's your next of kin let's give him a call like prove that you're not and and yet they do this whole you know like we're gonna we're gonna make this all about that the judge won't say that santa claus doesn't exist or that we won't let this da uh, continue to insist that santa claus doesn't exist we'll make them look like look like jerks and <laughs> it's like ah oh, man they really put those guys under just to save this man who um i mean i don't know <laughs> i don't know i have concerns uh about you know like his his mental health <laughs> But Todd, it all hinges on if he's Santa Claus, he's not crazy. I know. <laughs> I know, but I, I i guess I'm just not totally. You just got to accept that, Todd. And, and then I think you'll get by the mental health block <laughs> that you're having. The, fa- the fact that they are taking this, this man who has like serious mental health issues and they're uh, using him. Okay. And then here's the last thing. Is this, is this movie anti- commercialism is it anti-capitalism is it pro-business is it anti-business like i don't i have a hard time kind of um pinning it down exactly because there are these really um there are these really great speeches that one when chris is when chris is talking to alfred and he says there's um, a lot of bad isms in this world. Yeah, all these bad isms in the world. But the worst is is commercialism. That's it's Alfred talking to Chris. The worst is commercialism, and it's like it's all so horrible. And I and I'm thinking it's a very interesting way f- for you, Santa Claus, to combat commercialism by going into the belly of the beast, and then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also then, Fred is working for Macy's department store. <laughs> yeah, or Alfred. Yeah, not yeah, Fred. Alfred is working yeah, for. For Macy's, and then Chris gets a job, and he <laughs> he's the Santa Claus, and so like his whole entire job is to tell kids, "Don't worry, you're gonna get what you want for Christmas," right? <laughs> like, yeah. Which doesn't seem like the greatest way in the world to combat commercialism, just by 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 getting people to go to more and more stores to buy more and more things for Christmas, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they always say like, "Yeah, Macy's putting." The spirit of Christmas ahead of commercialism. It's like, well, it's more spreading commercialism than <laughs> it's just not all about Macy's commercialism. Right. But but do you think for a second that if they weren't having all of this positive feedback, that Macy wouldn't just put an end to this? I mean, oh, he's no, yeah, he's totally into it because Chris is making him more money. Mm-hmm. That's why he goes along with it's the whole ma- thing. It's he's, helping the Macy's brand. He's not being altruistic or uh, thinking that he's making the world a better place. He just I mean, there is, is the, the is only place totally where there's a turn on there is when he's on the stand and uh, his when he's being driven by greed, he's going to equivocate. And then when he gets pushed yeah. again and he's got he, he doesn't think about sales or how it's going to hurt his business, like how good his sales will be if he's right. successful or how much it would hurt his business if he says Santa's not Santa. Uh, he thinks about santa's interaction with kids and he says yeah this guy's santa claus well okay all right i mean his first one is his first thought is the spinning newspaper that you love right was what the spinning newspaper yeah yeah oh yeah it was a great spinning newspaper i love the spinning newspaper that says macy says that santa claus doesn't his santa claus is a fraud (laughs) right But that doesn't make him commit to say that yes he is santa claus that makes him equivocate sure anyway i just i uh, 
you know, like it, it's uh, Macy and Gimbal and they're there with Santa and everyone's saying, oh, look, this Santa Claus is so great because he's making everybody such a wonderful person. And then Macy's like, hey, here's your bonus check. <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is weird. Like it feels, I don't know, like seeing the real Santa Claus get a bonus check because he's making uh, more money. But what does Santa Claus immediately do with it? He says, I'm going to buy an x-ray machine for a doctor friend of mine. That's true. So uh, those are <laughs> – it's – um, yeah, I guess it boils down to I have real concerns about Chris's mental health. Um, and I think <laughs> But I don't, Todd, because he's really Santa Claus. <laughs> okay. And uh, that's, that's one concern. The other concern is I feel bad for the DA and the judge uh, because I think that they're just good guys like trying to do a good job and all these other people make this – they turn this argument into something that it that it's not, right? Like it should be about doing what's best for Chris and what's best for the people around Chris. And they should at least have a serious discussion about the fact that this man who seems totally harmless and who we're letting around our children uh, just whack this guy over the head when he had a, a totally clear reason not to. And then this whole thing with like commercialism and it's a movie that seems to decry commercialism while at the same time like hold up commercialism as as really great and you could make an argument that no this is a totally pro-business thing this is all about capitalism and that and it's the great thing about capitalism is that when people work in their best interest it's actually really good for everybody and so then you could say actually commercialism and uh capitalism are like pretty great and uh and businesses left alone to do their own to their own devices are actually making society better which is good but then why put in the the speech about commercialism and how horrible it is so uh, that, that, those are my I, – I now rest my case. I understand where you're coming from, and I found, as I was watching it, it didn't bother me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I see every point you're raising. And it's just kind of a I, – I think there's so much that charmed me about this film, I let all those things go. Yes. Well, uh, okay. Let's talk about the things that charm us then. Because, because on the whole, I still really like this movie. <laughs> yeah. But, and I see things. every point you're raising, and I don't really have a great defense for them. <laughs> okay. One thing that struck me as I was watching this, and it struck me because of a different podcast I'd listened to recently. So let me explain that other podcast, and then I'll jump into what it was struck me. Um, there is a podcast I enjoy called Judge John Hodgman, in which he uh, adjudicates trivial things that are dividing people <laughs> in, in a very humorous way. And, okay, there's one more layer to this. There's another podcast I've listened to many episodes of, but not all, that is called We Got This with Mark and Hal, where they decide, like, uh, kind of bar debates, like what is the best version, you know, best sitcom theme song? What is the, uh, or one like, I think they did uh, like apples or oranges, which one's really better? <laughs> like It's just <laughs> debates. And one year they did best Christmas movie. And eventually they settled on a Christmas story as the best Christmas movie. And one of them was really pushing that. And the other one had been really pushing uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And even afterward, the one who had been pushing It's a Wonderful Life said, I feel like we need to redo this. And so they took their case of, do they redo this to Judge John Hodgman on that podcast? <laughs> and Judge John Hodgman listened to their case and he listened to why the one guy wanted It's a Wonderful Life and why the other one wanted A Christmas Story. And after he gave his ruling, which is like, you know, you got to stick with what you originally said for you know these reasons. He said, if the guy who was pushing for It's a Wonderful Life had ever just said, this is the best Christmas movie because it's actually about Christ. <laughs> he would have. He's like, I would I would have bought that. Like this movie is about how crappy the world would be without Christ, how crappy it would be without someone who is self-sacrificing and inspired others yeah. to be better. And that's 
why that's the perfect Christmas movie. And I was watching this, and I'm like, oh, this is another one that's actually about Christ and faith and belief without ever actually mentioning yeah. Christ, which sometimes you may hear this kind of absurd complaint about the war on Christmas that no one ever mentions Chris, you know, Christ at Christmas time. You know who gave some of the best Christian stories without ever mentioning Christ? Jesus. I think yeah. he'd be on board <laughs> with some really great allegorical stories that teach you to be better, that teach you to care about your fellow man, uh, and maybe never mention him, and he would not be offended. Yeah. Just based and, on the teaching style we see from him in the Bible. Yeah, and I love that uh, about this film. I love all of the stuff that's about uh, hope and goodness and kindness. Um and faith and when she when she's uh when doris is talking to fred and she's saying um uh you know we don't want her to grow up to think that that the world is perfect and that she's gonna and she kind of launches into this monologue about how we shouldn't have um any fantasies about happily ever after and then fred says i thought we were talking about Susie, not you <laughs> And she says, uh, yeah. And um, like that, the mother-daughter relationship there and to see them both come around sort of for different reasons, um, all of that is really good. I mean, I really like it. And I think it's the reason why at the end of this film that has, in my mind, like some pretty, um, like I do, I really do have some pretty serious concerns about what's going on in some <laughs> points with this film. I It can end and I can go, okay, that was really great. <laughs> I feel better. And I like, I want, you know, I want this Christmas to be great. And I want my kids to, to have hope and wonder and faith in, and kindness and goodness and, and all of the things that Chris um, is. Cause he's just, I mean, he's so good. I love him. I really do. Well, and on that note, I think the other thing that I noticed this time around with the film that I hadn't really paid super close attention to before is that even as it has all those messages about the world being better with faith and hope and kindness and love, um, the kind of most immediate embodiment of that, I think, in the film would be the lawyer who just immediately mm -hmm. loves Chris Kringle and wants to defend him and says to the court, I'm going to prove he's Santa Claus. Yes. And yet he also can't just get by with faith and hope and love and kindness, right? <laughs> he he needs uh, both logic, he needs work, and he needs luck <laughs> to be able to yes. accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. So I think the message of the film is the world is better with all those things, but they're not enough. <laughs> like you still got to roll up your sleeves <laughs> and do your part. Interesting. Um, okay. <laughs> I think I have maybe one more thing. Um. <laughs> what's the message to kids with this film oh we mentioned I mean, this with, messages, uh, right uh, well okay i just wanted to say i think we mentioned this in a previous year maybe when we were talking about the movie elf that the doubting of santa claus is a pretty heavy theme in a lot of kids movies <laughs> like, yes. the introduction of the idea that santa isn't real happens in christmas movies for kids a lot yeah but uh, so um i remember when i was in when we were growing up we knew somebody that was from um who had family that was from cuba and this may be totally apocryphal but um but they said that uh when this person's family was uh little they would be in school and they would close their eyes uh the the school teachers would say would say close your eyes and say a prayer and ask god <clears throat> to give you ice cream and then they would open their eyes and there would be no ice cream on their desks and then they would say okay now close your eyes and ask fidel 
to bring you ice cream. And so they would close their eyes and then they would open their eyes and there would be ice cream on their desks. And it was like, um, I remember being horrified at that kind of um, uh, like manipulation of, of children. And then, but I mean, the is the message of this film, like if you ask Santa, if you really, 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 really believe, then you'll get it. Like <laughs> that's a weird, it's kind of a weird message. I like the message in this, in this movie about um, having faith and like goodness and decency and kindness and, um, and, and that that could all be embodied in somebody. All of that's really great. But th at the very end when she's like, oh, I didn't get what I wanted, you know, cause I asked for a house, a freaking house, <laughs> well, like a whole house. She does say, I knew it wouldn't be here, but I hope there'd at least be a note. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, uh, and I read that to to mean that, um, like, I knew that it wouldn't be under the tree. Because oh, I read it's that to mean a note explaining like why Santa doesn't give out houses. No, I don't think that's what she means because okay. the whole time she's like, "Well, I know, I know that's what you're gonna say. I know that's what you're gonna say. But if you're really Santa Claus, you'll get me a house." And he's <laughs> like, "Oh," and you can even see Chris like doing the thing with his beard, you yeah, know? Yeah, he strokes I, his beard. He's stroking his beard and he's like, oh my gosh, this is a tough one, you know? But uh, I mean, <laughs> that's, uh, it's awfully great lengths to, um, I mean. <laughs> With the implication that he moved a family out of the house on Christmas night somehow. <laughs> well, <laughs> that he, the, I mean, maybe he just, he's like the great puppeteer or something and he knows that they're going to buy this house if they just see it and see their Gold daughter in there or something. he needed yeah, to but, set some events in motion but what if I they mean, don't i mean what if they're like oh you know what this house is a little expensive maybe we could get or maybe this house isn't really as nice as we thought it was look the 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 pipes are leaky and like let's get married but let's find a different house then all of a sudden he you know he's not santa claus because i mean it's it's uh <laughs> I don't know what to make of it at the end when she's in the car and she's like, I do believe, 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 I do believe. And then just, stop, it's the house. And I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, man. That's the message to our kids. If you just sit in your car and say, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe, then really, you're the one. You're you're the special snowflake that's going to get the thing that you really, really want. <laughs> um, and anyway, that was <laughs> interesting to me. <laughs> Again, though, with the uh, if if your parents are going to roll up the sleeves and do the work, because <laughs> Santa works with parents in this film. He is not just magically dropping gifts through chimneys. <laughs> do you think that Fred was in on this with Chris? Which part? The house. No, he seemed quite surprised. And you think he's, he has. I will say, like, uh, this is one of those where I feel like the last line just. They needed something and they never quite nailed it. And I think I wish they'd done a few more passes on the last line of the film when he mm -hmm. looks at the cane in the corner and says, maybe I didn't do such a good thing. Like, that's kind of an awkward ending for this film. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't quite land right with the tone and the messages, which, as you've said, there's any number of messages that maybe could be pulled from this. But it doesn't quite land right for me as like the button on this whole story. And it's like the writers just need to take another hour in the writer's room and figure out what's our last line for this film. <laughs> Maybe. And now I'm just kind of working through my own headcanon here. What if Fred and Chris were, were in on it together? Well, we know so Fred Fred's is like, willing oh. to work things out to meet Doris because, uh, he coaches, coached, uh, Susie and in, inviting oh, yeah. him over for Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so maybe he's maybe he's in on it with Chris. Then then the end makes a little bit more sense, where he's sort of faking surprise, and he's like, "Oh, I'm so surprised. I don't know." But like in his mind, he's like, "I'm in love with this woman, and I've already talked to Chris, and I have the world's it's greatest wingman." <laughs> and right, <laughs> setting things Santa up Claus to make me look amazing. <laughs> yeah, and so he already knows that he's gonna buy this house rather than. Um, Chris as like the great puppeteer, this all seeing, all knowing who just knows that all of this is going to work out and that this is going to be the house that they're going to buy, et cetera, et cetera. I think that has to be your headcanon because it's not there in the text of the film. I think the film itself (laughs) is very much Santa Claus works things out. I like my, I like my version better. I like that Fred's in on it and he's like, yeah. Oh, okay. So you give us the map. I'll pretend like I'm lost. I'll just, I'll just pretend like I have no idea what's going on the whole time. But don't worry, like, I've already put in an offer on the house. It's going to happen. <laughs> put in an offer already? <laughs> uh, I, I like that better. Um, so, uh, man, I, I know I'm being I, – I, it sounds like I'm being hard on this film, um, but I'm only hard on it because I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> It's just funny to me because I, in rewatching it, like, again, I just loved it more. And I think we've uh-huh. had, I know I've had the opposite effect where when I come in for the podcast and look at a text really closely, I'm like, oh, it's just full of holes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I did not have the experience, that experience rewatching this. And it seems like you did. Oh, it's like, it's like an, um, a an photo negative of um, when we talked about uh, The Giver. Yeah. <laughs> for me. It's like, this This is not how humans work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you said that you liked, uh, Maureen O'Hara as Doris. Do you want to talk about her a little bit? Yeah. Well, if we're, if we're going to talk about like character arcs and, and who evolves, it's her and Susie are the ones that have an evolution in this film, right? Well, I guess mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you, Chris a little bit. He, well, he has a change, right? Where he, he dips down into frustration <laughs> and hits a man on the head and questions everything. Yeah. But I, I mean, he has I, a real existential crisis for a little bit there. Well, he does, but he just goes back to sort of status quo. Exactly. He, he reverts back employed. to status quo. So he, he has a dip, but he begins and ends the same, but with a dip in the middle. Well, I mean, he begins unemployed and he ends employed. So <laughs> he's, he's employed as being himself. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, but but uh, Doris. So, yeah, Doris, um, I think in. Not. I mean, they don't devote too many, uh, you know, too much mileage into explaining her backstory. They give us enough and she explains enough, both of what actually happened and her reaction to it through her um, treatment uh, or, or how she's raising uh, Susie that we get enough. And there's also Marina Hara gives a great performance as the kind of hardened, um, but but not too hard, right? I, I think in the yeah. 1940s, it would have been very easy for uh, a film to portray a working woman who's uh you know not romantically inclined at the moment to just be bitter and hard and she's mm. not that she's just um in her mind she's you know awakened to reality and she's trying to instill that on her daughter cuz she clearly had some sort of fairy tale v- vision of what her life was going to be and it hasn't turned out that way yeah um but it i i mean because of that you almost want to use the word that she's kind of embittered towards life but she does not come across as bitter when she's working the parade route when she's interacting with uh not uh who, who's the other uh toy um toy oh toy shell floor. hammer 
Yes. <laughs> and uh, shout out his to, wife. to him and oh, his man. wife. <laughs> <laughs> For some of the, there's some actually like legitimately great comic moments in this film. Oh, yeah. Shell Hummer and his wife and uh, the, the DA with his wife when yep. uh, when she says you're persecuting him, he says, no, I'm prosecuting him. <laughs> and then she says, sometimes I wish I'd married a grocer. And he's like, well, if I lose this case, you may. <laughs> or it might still happen. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in in those interactions, she doesn't come across as bitter at all um, or even that hardened. She's just a professional. Yeah. And I think uh, I, I think that she's trying to be a good mom. And she doesn't oh, yeah. seem to she doesn't come across as like abusive or uh, you don't you don't come uh, out of this film like wagging your finger at her saying what a horrible what a horrible horrible person. And they don't they also don't lean into uh yeah like I I kind of I like the sort of her understated like backstory. I'm kind of glad that they don't like dive into that whole thing. Yeah, what went just, wrong? You just know she got a divorce. <laughs> and right. She was married, and then it did, didn't work out. Um, she's disillusioned by the by that fact, and she's trying to protect her daughter for, from uh, you know similar things happening in the future. And yeah, I, I like that word better. Totally, I was going to say better th- better than her being embittered. She's now protective of her daughter, particularly, but also of herself. Yeah, I think that's a better which, word for it. Which uh, which uh, is one of the reasons why I think we like her because mm-hmm. because even though you don't agree with the um, the the means uh you understand that she's motivated by love and um and i mean she really truly is trying to protect her daughter from uh, like a really legitimately bad thing that happened to her and even though they don't tell us what it is we can um trust that it was not great yeah and um even though i think as an audience we like you do feel like an emotional Yes, when she writes on the letter, like, I believe too, and she's allowing her daughter to believe, and she gives her daughter that monologue about what faith is. Um, yeah. If she hadn't changed, she'd still be a good mom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even as much as we like <laughs> seeing that change, if she hadn't, she'd still just be just fine. And no, right. I don't think an audience would be upset at her uh, or questioning her role, uh, you know, her maternal role over Susie or anything like that. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean... It's it when when they're like doing the animal thing and you think, okay, she's really never even pretended to be an animal. Like <laughs> that's pretty extreme. <laughs> but uh but you understand where she's coming from. Absolutely. Um and yet we we do like the the transformation that we see. Yeah. Um and she does Maureen O'Hare does get to deliver a beautiful monologue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, she does. And uh, and then Natalie, I think we should talk about Natalie Wood also as a uh, Susie. Yeah, she is so good. <laughs> she is. <laughs> what makes her so good? It, well, just um, her her line delivery when she's being uh, like, like like right when we first meet her, and she's like, "Oh, I don't believe in that." Um, it's it's just so so perfect. And then her she gets petulant at times, and she gets excited at times. Like she just yeah. as a child actress nails the uh you know the display of emotion in a way that isn't too far and isn't too understated right because some child act- actors and actresses just by nature of being kids they can come off as a bit robotic or as they're overplaying everything i don't know how she and the director uh what was the director's name again I want to give him credit here uh seaton george seaton they, they managed to get a great performance she gave a great performance yeah, he coached her in a great performance um and she kind of managed to hit 
just about the perfect note on everything. Um, maybe at the end she overplays the sadness about the uh, the the no note <laughs> under the tree, as you you said. Like at that point, you start to question, like, what message are my kids supposed to take from this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I don't know about you. I've had some sad kids, and they can overplay it <laughs> too. Yeah. No, at no point in watching this film do I think no kid is like that. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. like she seems very, um, she's totally believable as that, as that character. And uh, she doesn't, sometimes when you see like a a smart, I guess precocious maybe is the word that I'm looking for, like a child in a film, you think, okay, nobody, no kid that's that age talks like that. Nobody acts like that. Nobody's that smart when they're that young. And I never have those thoughts uh, with her. She seems like a very believable, um, really smart girl who's grown up with a mom who has dedicated everything <laughs> to her. And, and you know, it's she her her intelligence and her um disbelief are only a product of her mother's uh training her and it all just it, it all like rings true and uh i like that about her and then her change is also believable yeah um and you know when she goes to write that letter it's a happy moment for a film you know yes. viewer um and you do get caught up in the emotion of the story and also their performance yeah I like it. Uh, you wanted to talk some about Chris Kringle, uh, the yeah. wonderful. Uh, uh, let me get his name one more time. Oh. Edmund Murray. No, <laughs> something, something. Yeah, like uh, Edmund Gwen. That's it. Edmund Gwen. Gwen. Yes, Edmund Gwen. Who again won the Academy Award for this role? What else has he been in? Well, allow me a moment <laughs> to to check the recesses He's of my mind. So good. He really nails this this part. Edmund Gwen, Miracle on 34th Street, The Trouble with Harry, Them, Foreign Correspondent. Uh, four film, four Hitchcock films, film Mister 880. Don't know that one. This doesn't seem like he's. He's got a long filmography. His filmography, I'm on uh, Wikipedia, goes from 1916 to uh, 56. So that's wow. good, a good career. Yeah, it is a good career. He was in a Les Mis adaptation. He's great. He's a really good actor. Yeah. Not going to argue with you. Whoa, Santa he was Claus. in Them! Um, the giant ant 50s sci-fi movie. I'm sorry. That, I irradiated seen. ants that grow to giant size in the in the desert in Nevada or New Mexico somewhere. Oh, okay. we have, how have we not talked about a 1950s sci-fi film? Oh my goodness. Let's put it on the list. <laughs> we, we just need to, we need to get into that one. Okay. okay. Did not expect to see him in them. Oh, oh, such a great creature feature. Giant ants, Todd. So big. Okay. All right. Okay. And it's always not, remember, I, it has an exclamation point you, in the nothing title. Nothing that you have said, nothing that you have said so far, except that Edmund Gwen is in it. Has, would make it move any higher on my list of films to watch. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, uh, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't what, know what, what to do say, say about, about his character that yeah. I haven't already said. Well, okay. Which so... is, I think that there's some really complicated things going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know how to, um, 
how to like resolve the dissonance that's in my mind about <laughs> on the one hand, uh, I have serious concerns about his mental health <laughs> and the fact that they're parading him around for, um, for gain when I don't know that they're really concerned about what's best. Well, in part, what's best for him and in part, what's best for the kids. But then you set that aside and you say, this guy's amazing and <laughs> and I love him and I don't want to see him locked up for the rest of his life. Because right. So concerning his mental health, like health, do you think he is really Santa Claus? Is the film portraying him as no. being really Santa Claus? See, for no, me, the film absolutely. is saying, oh, he's really Santa Claus. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, it is because he gets the house. <laughs> like it's a Santa Claus who uses... Like you said, these Rube Goldbergian uh, machinery of parents and uh, you know tipping tipping dominoes, but he's Santa Claus. Um, okay, wow, you and I have very different readings of this film. <laughs> At least that is I how I have realized. always seen it. Particularly that last scene for me, that's saying uh, Chris Kringle was really Santa Claus. I agree with everything you say, except that he really is Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to I used to have the exact same reading that you do, um, but watching it this time, it seems pretty clear to me that he's that he's not that he's that that Sawyer is right. That he's, he's just a nice old man. He's a nice old man that has a delusion that ninety nine percent of the time doesn't harm anybody, but one time it does, and because the one time it does, that's why we have to have a conversation about what to do with him, <laughs> and then they take advantage of him. Uh, and well, I have never read it that way, Todd. <laughs> or yeah, well, it. I never had either until today. That's the, interesting. Can you, can you can you understand my my uh, my concerns now? I mean, I had never I had never had that reading of that film the until until right now, like as of a couple of hours ago. Uh, I always assumed that he really was Santa Claus, and that this was all about um, you know, like the wonder and. And, and, and that, or at least that it was fantastic and that it wasn't really clear if he was or not, but that you can yes, make an argument. There's definitely that ambiguity that I'm not going to say you're completely wrong because there's deliberate ambiguity in how we're supposed to right. take the story. But today, if you ask me, I would uh, I would say unequivocally that he is a nice old man that has a serious delusion. <laughs> and uh, and that, yeah, it makes it. Um, interesting for me to watch this film. <laughs> well, I don't think we're going to convince each other of our points of view. So let's leave it to our listeners to put a comment on the Facebook page and let us know how you <laughs> view the film. Like the worst, I feel like the worst human being now, except that I am standing up for the poor DA and the judge. <laughs> well, and again, there is ambiguity. Like the film doesn't definitively state, like you don't see a shot of him flying in a sleigh with reindeer, right? That's no. that's not going to happen. That's not the point of this film. So, are you saying that? Are you saying that in this version, in this version, that Santa Claus, like there really is no sleigh, there is no reindeer, there is no North Pole? I don't know. He goes away Santa on Christmas Eve. <laughs> okay, so there is so there is a sleigh and eight reindeer and North Pole and elves and all of those things. And he is There's, immortal. All... And but he uses us <laughs> to help. Again, getting back to this being a film oh, about Christ without being about Christ. <laughs> he can do a lot of miraculous things, but he'd prefer we do it for ourselves. Well, okay, so then why does he, when he's next to the bed and Susie says, I want this house. And he says, oh, you want a little doll's house. And she says, no, I want this house. And, like, the look of concern on his face is totally real. And right. if he was really, truly an immortal Santa Claus, he would just say, oh, well, I mean, why would he look concerned? He would just snap his fingers and say, uh, don't worry, uh, you're going to have your house. 
because uh, he, he, this Santa Claus doesn't work that way, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> that's i mean i don't know what to tell you other than this obviously this doesn't work that way yeah and the the one you know what the one line even as i always believed that he really was santa claus the line that always stuck in my head when i was a kid was the the da saying i've got to get home and buy that football helmet well and again this is a santa that uses like like when he's at the uh, when when the kids are asking him for stuff, he says, "Oh, you'll get that." And the parents say, "He's not going to get it." And he knows the parents usually buy the presents. He says, "Well, yeah, he is because here's where you can go get it." He uses us for the greater good. Yeah, but what if the mom says, "You know what? I'm not going to get that anyway." Well, he knew the mom would if he gave her the tools to be able to do it. That's <laughs> <laughs> so all I can tell you, Todd. <laughs> There's some hand waviness about how the Santa works. <laughs> There is definitely some hand waving. So you think that if they had said, "Okay, Santa, uh, you're going to prove that you're Santa Claus," let's uh, let's get Comet on the line, and uh, that he he actually could have produced that had he wanted to. Uh, yes, it would have been possible, but he would not have wanted to. Okay, all right. Because this movie is like... about restoring faith, not knowledge. I like your reading better than mine, but I have a hard time reading it your way. After today. And after today, yes. I'm 35 years of magic and wonder just came crashing down on me two hours ago. <laughs> like, trying to, what, trying to what changed my your shattered reading life. today? Like, what, what for you changed? Obviously, we can all engage with a text, text at different points in our life, and it's the same text, but we get wildly different things out of it. I think that's a perfectly natural thing to I'm happen sure, to all of us. I'm sure that it has to do with, um, because of, like, very specific personal reasons, having a heightened sensitivity to issues of mental health mm. uh, today than I ever have before. Um and both in the way that that um, affects a person's interactions with other people and what is the um, appropriate, like the, the best way to deal with that as a caretaker and the responsibility that we have to take care of the people around us who are suffering from uh, mental health issues and uh, to make sure that that they are safe, that the people around them are safe. Like <laughs> I, I know, I know 100% that the reason why I read this film the way that I do today is because of that heightened sensitivity to those issues that I never had as a kid. And, um, and now I do. And, and like, I can't unsee, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I can't unlive my life now. Right. Um, that's my, that's my horizon of expectations that I've brought to this film. And like, <laughs> it's been completed in my mind in a completely different way. And, and so I'm dealing with the fact that on the one hand, there's so much about this film that I really, really love. And on the other hand, there's this part of it now that like all these pieces that I can't put back into the, the puzzle that it doesn't, it doesn't look like it used to. It feels like watching a fundamentally different film. And right. It's an interesting sort of study in um, readership. So in, well, talking about readership, like in lit theory and everything, there's, you know, the, the authorial intent and then there's reader response and everything can be valid. Do you think authorial intent that Valentine and uh, Seton, the uh, writer and director of the film, were they, which do you think they would have <laughs> wanted it? How would they have wanted it to be read? Now, obviously however we read it that's valid we, we bring our own lenses yeah. and experiences to it and our our reception is valid whatever it may be but how do you right. think they would have wanted it to have been received 
uh, per the way that you, I, I think they would want it to be received the way that you are reading it. But they also um, left enough ambiguity that you can't invalidate but I your reading. Yeah, I don't think that I am misreading the text. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think I've given you enough specific examples of things that <laughs> you have said, you have ad admitted <laughs> there is no defense for. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that I'm misreading the text. Um, but, uh, but it also doesn't, again, like invalidate your reading of the text, but that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, in the, I mean, that's what one branch of literary theory is all about how the text isn't complete until we complete the text. <laughs> yeah, so we, we engage with it and we, we add our own meaning to it. Right. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating for me to think about it, uh, even as I'm going through it. Well, and also I think it's worth noting that as a text from 1947, the way mental health issues were engaged with, you know, that many decades ago is very different than even the uh, a layperson's uh, interaction with them today. Yeah, um, I I'm really interested in seeing the it was ninety four the ninety four version of this again, and I I'd be interested to see kind of what my reaction is to that film. I I think I've only seen that once or twice ever. I remember Mara Wilson is in it, and she is fantastic in Matilda, and I don't yeah she's sweet. I don't have any big memories of it other than I know that to provoke santa claus in that version of the film into hitting someone there's a reference to pedophilia which just kind of taints everything <laughs> but it's certainly a way to get santa angry enough <laughs> to punch someone i think it's a more believable way yeah well, i think that's getting, what they were struggling with is this him. scene in the 47 version well he hit someone and was there enough provocation to for this to be waved away probably not <laughs> you know that, i don't think there you, is you could say he was provoked but not enough that it was self-defense or anything like that. And yeah. so they up the stakes of how provocative they are to get an emotional response out of Santa Claus. Yeah. But it, it does just like, it's a big fly in the ointment of a Christmas film to have to engage with the idea of pedophilia at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, <laughs> we have been all over the place in our, in our last 15 minutes that I was not yeah, expecting us to go. <laughs> we have, um, Again, I would go back to my daughter's response when this movie ended and she looked at me with those big shining eyes and said, I loved that movie. And I said, why? And she said, I don't know, but I did. Uh, like, I don't know that there can be a greater, um, like greater praise <laughs> put on a film than that when it ends, uh, you know, your audience just says, I feel good. And that's basically what she was saying is, I feel good after having watched that movie. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, my response today is I feel good and like conflicted, <laughs> but I still really like this film, but, um, but I'm not going to take anything away from anybody who watches this film and just really enjoys it because, um, because that's what it was intended for. And, um, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of the good, um, at the college that I work at where they're really, really interested in, um, like the philosophical idea of the good. And so we are in every class, we, we try to engage, um, that idea of like, what, it, what is it that makes something good? And one definition, uh, of good is that it fulfills its purpose. And we've talked about this before. Like, we're not going to say that this is Shakespeare, uh, but is it good at what it's trying to do, which is be an inspirational, uplifting, um, Christmas film. And I think, uh, by and large, 
um, I would say this is a good Christmas film <laughs> because it does what it's supposed to do, which is make you feel good, um, make you want to be a better person and a kinder, um, more engaged person, especially at, at, in the holiday times. All for all of those reasons, I would say this is a good a good Christmas film. Yeah, and, and that's why it amongst the dozens and dozens and well at this point hundreds of christmas stories that have been adapted into film or television this one is in the canon of oh, yeah. <laughs> of christmas films yeah and i like what you said earlier about um uh you know talking about faith and and christ without feeling like it has to um you know be uh give a sermon <laughs> be the christmas the christmas pageant which you know there is we definitely need that <laughs> um but but this is a good i mean this is a good story about faith i think and uh, and i like that yeah yeah I, th I think certainly at the holiday season well, you know depending on what your faith is there's place for that like i said the 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 christmas christmas uh, christmas sermon sermon about christ about the birth of christ but i think there's also definitely place for these stories that are about being good and being better without um, being overtly like, this is the Christ story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think we need more stories in the world and we need more engagement with the idea of just being good and being better because, <laughs> you know, whatever the reason may be, yeah. we're, we're just going to be good and especially, we're going to be better. Especially now world. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> like let's get it together. You know, <laughs> well, that's been a rough, I guess I it's been say... a rough stretch. You know what? I've been thinking a lot about what's been going on lately, and um, and I just have to keep reminding myself, like, this world is so full of good people. There are so many good people who just wake up in the morning, and they do what they're supposed to do, and they treat other people with kindness and respect, um, and they and and then they go home at night and they go to sleep, and <laughs> and they wake up the next morning and they do it again, and they do it over and over and over and over again, and it's easy for um, and, and I mean, it's important for us to recognize like, man, there have been a lot of people that have been real jerks and <laughs> we need to get like whatever's going on. We need to get it under control. But, um, but man, like there are, this world is full of good men and women of all <laughs> races and creeds and um, nationalities and uh, systems of belief that just wake up in the morning and they really try to be a good person and to treat other people with respect. And then, um, and then they go home and they go to sleep and they wake up the next day and they do it again. And they just do it over and over and over again. And we don't uh, applaud them enough, I think. <laughs> so, yes, I think uh, condemn the jerks, praise the good people is yes. a, a good motto. And uh, I think a, a movie like uh, Miracle on 34th Street can help inspire people to be better. Uh, whatever yeah. level of goodness you're at watching this kind of movie that does fill you with good positive emotions at the end can help you to choose to even be better. And, and those stories are, are worth uh, thinking about and engaging with. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all of the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. And we would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 53, when we talked about It's a Wonderful Life, or episode number 103, when we talked about White Christmas, other members of the canon of Christmas films. 
You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. Or you can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow Protagonist Pod, Todd K. Mack, Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is uh, Dizminute on Twitter. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners, and we would love for you to stop by and you can give us a shout out about your interpretation of this film. What is your reading of uh, Chris Kringle and Santa Claus? If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. All right, are you uh, ready to go for the discussion? I think so. Man, which character? I said like the cast of Miracle on Thirty Four. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I kind of, I think I kind of assumed we were talking about Chris, but um, uh, oh, see, or, I assumed we were going to be talking about Susie <laughs> or Tor. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, good. Then I guess we'll have something to talk about.